I love playing the game of disc golf. What I hate is waking up the next day, feeling that soreness in my muscles, in my body, my arms, my shoulders, my legs. And what I typically do is I wake up, I hammer down a few ibuprofen or Tylenol, and I go ahead and move on with my day. What I didn't realize was how bad that was for my body as well. Throwing a disc is very strenuous on your body, whether you realize it or not. What it does is it causes micro tears in muscles, which then become inflamed, and that's where any post-workout or post-round soreness comes from. That's why you need to check out our friends at Wonderkind. Wonderkind with a U. All natural CBD products. They're located right here in the United States, and they're always shipping for free. All of their products are 100% legal in all 50 states, lab tested to make sure that you're getting the highest quality CBD product to help you recover from your round out on the course. The CBD products all have an anti-inflammatory property, which is amazing for muscle recovery and pain reduction after a round. Guys, check out Wonderkind. Again, that's W-U-N-D-E-R-K-I-N-D. You can follow them on Instagram at Wonderkind Extracts, and you can visit their website at wonderkindextracts.com and select from any of their amazing CBD products and use code RUNIT15 at checkout to save 15% off. Again, that's RUNIT15 at wonderkindextracts.com. Tired of putting down those ibuprofen and those Tylenol, eating up your stomach and attacking your liver? Well, give an all-natural CBD product a shot and see how much better you feel after your round. Again, that's wonderkindextracts.com, and we thank them for sponsoring this podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Casey Smith of the Pittsburgh Penguins, and you're listening to Running It with Nate Sexton. Running It with Nate Sexton is brought to you in part by Innova Champion Discs, makers of the Disc Catcher. The Innova Disc Catcher is installed on more courses worldwide than any other target. Hello, Disc Golf fans, and welcome back to another episode of Running It with Nate Sexton. I am your co-host, Jared Orr. He is a man who is back out traveling, ready to play again. Our host, Mr. Nate Sexton. Nate, how you doing today, man? I'm great. I'm, I'm here sprawled out at the Best Western Plus in Stockton, California for the OTB Open. So things are going good. I had the Jomez practice round today. Um, yeah, man, out here traveling, out here playing. The plus. I wouldn't expect you to be anywhere else. If, I mean, sure. if you're going to be somewhere, you're going to be in the plus. Yeah, of course. So uh, you're getting back in the swing of things. This is another another tournament for you. How's it feel now to be, you know, you're, you're back? Yeah, man, I, I still feel like uh, I'm shaking off some rust, but, I, but I'm happy to be doing that. You know, like I, I, I learned, uh, I feel like I made a lot of progress today out practicing, just kind of dialing the roller back in. That's not been a shot that I've used as much as I would like. Uh, during this COVID time off because the courses I play around my house just don't really call for it. So made a lot of progress there through some nice ones. And yeah, man, just uh, fun to see everybody, fun to be out there competing. Uh, Yeah, really looking forward to this next little swing because I'm playing quite a lot of tournaments coming up. 
Plus, you have uh, full control of the remote now on the TV. No more sharing cartoons with with Coraline or whatever Doctor Sexton wants to watch. At least for these few nights, sure. While you're traveling, you're back. You're back behind the driver's seat. Sure. Yeah, I got the I got those NBA games coming in every night. Nice, nice. Well, we've got uh, we're both out traveling, um, you know, doing everything that we can here to to get another show out. As they say, Nate, the show must go on. It must. So, the fans don't care that we're we're out and about and we're doing the West Coast tour here. Um, they they want to hear an episode, and you got one lined up for us. Now, before we get to this amazing interview, everybody knows we've got to pay some bills. And, uh, of course, I am talking about our friends over at FisherDiscGolf.com. Guys, it's not too late to jump on the Clint Calvin bandwagon here. Uh, he had another real strong finish. He even got a little uh, feature card love. He was playing with... Uh, uh, with Double G and Ricky and AB and, um, you know, played pretty well out there at Gold Hill. I think he had a top 10 finish. And you guys can get a signature Clint Calvin disc right at FisherDiscGolf.com. He is a Team Fisher player, so if you picked up any of that uh, coverage, you saw that Fisher Disc Golf logo right on his back. So uh, Fisher Disc Golf doing some big things in the disc golf world. Not only are they our official retail sponsor, but also helping sponsor some players and, and keep them going out. Out on tour. So if you guys are enjoying the show, you like what we've got going on here, uh, checking out our sponsors is one of the best ways to support the show. So visit FisherDiscGolf.com. Find them on Facebook or Instagram at FisherDiscGolf. Of course, you know about Disc Stacks. That's every Tuesday and Friday at 7. You can pre-purchase your pool so you know when your time is coming so you don't have to sit through the entire thing. Although I've, I've joined so many of them. It's a lot of fun to see the discs that people are pulling out. Fisher Disc Golf, we can't thank them enough for uh, for everything that they've done for this show. Uh, 18 different brands, tons of apparel. They've just got a lot of great stuff going on there if you're a fan of disc golf. And if you're listening to this podcast, you probably are. So FisherDiscGolf.com. And Nate, just for listening to this show, they save themselves a little bit of money, right? Yeah, you can get 10% off your first purchase with our code, Run at 10 Shipping's always free. Go check them out for your next new disc. Absolutely. And Nate, I'll tell you, I did some uh, did some disc golf playing the last few days here. Having a pouch of double G craft jerky in your bag is always a plus. Um, I love this jerky, and I keep ordering it. Um, I, I'm probably spending more on jerky than they are in sponsorship right now, but that's okay. Double G's doing the right things out there, and uh, I'm just loving the new Smashed Cracked Pepper, um, and the, the original have been my kind of mixture that I've been going with here. Uh, Double G Craft Jerky has been a huge supporter over the last few weeks of running it with Nate Sexton. You guys already know who Garrett is. You see him out there dropping and bombs. You wonder how he does it. Maybe it's the jerky. Visit DoubleGCraftJerky.com. Pick yourself up a bag. Uh, you can use code RUNIT and you will get yourself a commemorative Double G Craft Jerky pin. A little decoration for the bag. And uh, Nate, I know Garrett's a teammate of yours, a friend of yours, and I know you love some jerky, man. Yeah, man. I, I'm looking for him right now. I haven't found him yet, but I got five Firebirds. I'm looking to trade him because he needs those. And I said he wanted to pay me I think I already mentioned it last show. Definitely don't want money from this guy. All I want is jerky and maybe some wraiths. So I need to find him, hopefully tomorrow. And uh, and then I'll be living that Jarrett life. I'll be snacking on jerky. Yeah, man. I'll tell you what. 
it doesn't matter how you play. Uh, like when there's a big group coming through, I just kind of pull out my coolest disc and a bag of double G craft jerky and they look over and they're sure that I know what I'm doing. They're like, that's a, that's a disc offer right there. Well, so, you kind of do. I mean, those two things you sort of do know what you're doing. That's kind of more simple than people think. Right. Yeah. It's uh, it's all about you fake it till you make it, baby. That's what I'm doing here. So, uh, Nate, you once again, even being out on the road and traveling and uh, you and Chandler were road tripping it, you still had time to line up an incredible de- guest. Actually, one of our more requested guests, Nate, who are we running it this week with? Yeah, and, and most requested with good reason. We're we're lucky to have a, a friend of mine, the 2009 World Champion, a three-time major winner, the 2000 PDGA Rookie of the Year, and really one of the players that I looked up to most early in my playing career, and somebody that kind of helped me learn the ropes and how to live the professional disc golf life. We are lucky to be joined by Mr. Avery Jenkins. Avery, welcome. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Great to be here. Hey, man. Good to hear from you. Good to hear from you guys. Appreciate you having me on the show. Been looking Ab- forward to this. Absolutely, man. I've been looking forward to it for a while. Got to get you. Obviously, got to get your sister. Uh, you you, you kind of know how the show goes. We keep it real conversational, but I kind of want to get some insight on uh, some of your early days playing and hear some stories that you have from all those years on the road. But kind of before we do that, for anybody who maybe doesn't know, I got to kind of let our listeners know your family has kind of been referred to as the first family of disc golf and that's for good reason i'm going to run some stats by you before we get started between your parents leroy and sharon and your sister val you guys have 24 pdga major titles including nine world championships you got 39 pdga national tour titles and you have way too many a-tier wins for for our small research department account but pretty incredible resume for one family uh, I just I got to give you your due, let the people know kind of where you came from with all that stuff. And, and yeah, I just kind of want to get into it with you sort of talking about uh, how that all started, what you remember about the beginning of disc golf for you and your family. So do keep in mind, that is flattering, but do keep in mind, Valerie holds down most of those titles. She's talking about those big major wins, those big national tour wins. Uh, she's definitely holding it down for the family with a lot of those accolades and titles. But I. Uh, we do, uh, you know, we do put it together. We do have some world titles in the family, like you said, along with Nate Doss being part of the Team Jenkins family and obviously very much the family, uh, just holding down some big world titles. That's why they give us the title of the first family within disc golf. And uh, it, is, it is amazing to grow up in that lifestyle. Like, I, you know, I, I grew up on tour in so many ways with my parents traveling and playing a lot of the earlier events. And it was just something that was as common as playing basketball and football and baseball growing up. That was disc golf for us. And just to be known, I've been every single pro world championship since 1991. So I've been exposed to disc golf at the highest levels for a long, long time. Those, you know, a lot of those top players and champions then have been idols of mine and, and players I've looked up to for decades. Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And speaking of Val, obviously she's a, she's right on our short list of people for the show, a hall of famer at this point. So for, for sure. sure, one of the greatest to ever do it, but you guys are the rest of the family. No slouch. I mean, everybody's kind of pulling their weight. I went through all the PDGA statistics. Everybody's got big wins. 
Uh, but yeah, and, and and you as well, obviously. That's why we got you here to talk about that whole <laughs> career. So you know, as, sure. as good as Val is, the the family's all kind of they're all doing it. So it, it, just incredible the the doing amount it. of success you guys had and uh, able to play all those times. And so like. Did you play other sports in high school, or or were you kind of disc golf only at that point? I grew up playing all sports. I think I started playing like t-ball and soccer at a very young age. Even playing football um, and basketball, you know, throughout elementary school and middle school. And it wasn't until really, like, you know, I, I started playing when I was six years old. So it was again, it was another sport I played, and I was playing at a you know at a very young age, playing juniors events, playing local playing regional in a way playing you know in ohio or maybe over in pennsylvania and it was just again it was another sport i grew up with and something i really enjoyed playing plus it was a it was a family sport something we traveled to tournaments and certain events in the area that you know it was something we we were exposed to at a very young age and i'm very grateful that that i was yeah absolutely i i wasn't i wasn't starting quite that young but i think my the family part of it rings true with me as well because you know for us it was just like kind of camping trips to start you know with me and my brother and my my dad and stepmom and everybody competing in the tournaments and just kind of driving around our region so i think i i have i have a lot of those same kind of experiences though i didn't start when i was six years old and uh we didn't win a whole lot of national tours in the sexton house but uh (laughs) but you know uh (laughs) But yeah, man, it, I think I share that with you, that kind of that memory of, of kind of playing as a kid and it feeling like a family sport where we're going out there to the course together and everybody's playing and uh, super, super grateful to have all those experiences, as I'm sure you are as well. Absolutely. I was going to say the, the, plan, the, the family that plays together stays together is a, yeah. is a hot stamp I've seen on a disc before and it always very, it rang very true for our family and, and what we did and what we've, you know, been a part of for, for a long, long time. Yeah, man. So I kind of, you know, like I said, I kind of dig into the PDGA history, and I'm sure you had a lot of non-PDGA action early on as well, but from kind of 1992 to 1998, you're kind of playing as just a kid, playing amateur, a couple tournaments, five this year, none this year, but still kind of traveling to those pro worlds with the family and being exposed and playing a ton of disc golf casually, I'm sure. Uh, but in 1999, uh, I don't know, that must have been you getting kind of close to graduating high school at that at that point. Yeah, I just graduated high school and I was playing a lot more. Um, yeah, yeah. It was kind of like just the high school thing, you know. You're you're a high school sure. kid and doing yeah. high school things and and working a job and having a girlfriend, and just you know, doing that kind of thing. But it wasn't until after high school that I really started getting into it and playing a lot more local and regional events. So '99 was my last big year playing advanced amateur, and then it wasn't until 2000 playing my first year pro. Yeah, I think that was the same for me. With it wasn't until right after high school that I really started hitting it hard. You played seventeen tournaments, like you said in uh, in ninety nine. You were playing amateur mostly, but you did kind of dip your toes in. You played that ninety nine World Championship in Rochester, New York. Uh, I was curious what you remember about that week, and kind of against the backdrop of knowing that you were there at every one since ninety one. Like, how crazy was it to see Climo's run come to an end there? Because it was Ron Russell that took it down in nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, it was uh, it was shocking um, to to be in the moment and be a part of that week. I believe I missed the cash by a stroke or something. Oh man! And I, and I was wondering even if I would have took it, if I would have just finished out amateur or would have turned pro at that point. Um, but what I remember in that week, it was again, it was it was a world championships, and I've been exposed to that. And I've been a part of that, so it was it was very comfortable for me to be in the moment and and kind of being a part of the world championships for my first one in '99. 
but to bring it to Climo and Ron Russell to watch that battle throughout the week, like it was a it was a heavyweight match. Like to watch these guys going shot for shot and round for round, and there was even times in kind of passing when they weren't on the course, like. It was so intense because Climo wanted that one so bad. There was times where they were getting in each other's face, like after the round or in wow. the parking lot, and definitely John and, and and talking it. And it was intense to watch it all go down from an outsider kind of looking in. And I was a, a Climo, you know, I was, a, I was definitely Climo was an icon, definitely an idol for oh, me yeah. growing up for a long time. And to watch him battle it out and Ron Russell. Obviously, uh, he earned it. He, he worked for it. He did everything he needed to do to, to win that week. But to watch a legacy kind of go down that weekend and not let Climo win his 10th in a row, it was, it, was, it was unreal. But to watch it all happen the way it did and with these two legends of the game battling it out for that world title and Ron Russell taking it. Pretty, pretty incredible I, to, to imagine being there and seeing that because it's, I mean, Climo had to just seem totally unbeatable. I don't think anybody was picking against him at that point, even though there were a lot of players coming up. I mean, Barry Schultz made third that week. He's kind of on the rise in those years. But man, yeah, absolutely crazy. And then 2000, we mentioned, you know, you, you won Rookie of the Year in the 2000 season. You played pro. You had a lot of success. You got the big win on Toronto Island, I think. You're, yes, you're kind of out there traveling, sort of traveling, but kind of staying within your region a little bit. You're not like going all the way out to the West Coast or anything. But then 2001, that's kind of when you went all in. Then there, you're 44 tournaments. You're all over the country. Um, who were you traveling with? You know, you're, you're still only, what, 20 years old or so. Um, yeah, just what do you remember about that season and kind of really jumping in with two feet as a touring player? Sure. So 2000, again, was a big year, um, won some big events in there. You mentioned in Toronto Island Open. That was when A-tiers, being super tour events, were the biggest tournament besides a big major event. And having that crowning moment in Toronto Island, that's where I think I proved myself as a pro and really realized that this is something I can take to another level. So winning that, you know, those big tournaments that year, winning Rookie of the Year, definitely set me up to do something huge within the sports. So in the off season of 2000 to 2001, I was still in college. I had a job, I had a girlfriend and I was called by my good friend, David Felberg uh, about the, the chance and opportunity to go play disc golf for a living, to go uh, jump on the road in a motorhome and travel around the country with him and Todd branch and uh, play disc golf each and every weekend, travel from point A to point B and just live that disc golf lifestyle. And at that time, again, I was involved with a lot of different things. And I literally (laughs) dropped out of college, broke up my girlfriend, quit my job, told my parents, I'm going to go, I'm going to go make it happen. And being that my parents were so into disc golf, they're the ones that kind of started the craze already. They were fully supportive, say, this is a perfect opportunity. You need to go out there, live your life, chase your dream and go play disc golf for a living. So it was 2001 is when I kind of made that turn. Obviously, I proved myself in the year before, and it was Dave Felberg and Todd Branch who really saw that visionary within me to to do something great, and it was the opportunity of a lifetime, and I couldn't pass it up. Yeah, man, that's awesome. I I think most of our listeners are going to recognize the name Dave Felberg, but most of them aren't going to recognize the name Todd Branch, and that's that's a guy that I don't even really know. Uh, can you give us kind of a quick bio on him and where he was in the game at that time? So we were titled as the Winnie Crew. 
the Winnie crew standing for the Winnebago crew because we traveled around in a 1978 Winnebago. The years previous, I'm going to say 98, 99, even 2000, the Winnie crew consisted of Todd Branch, who was a, a, a pro within um, Kalamazoo area, uh, a top five player within the state of Michigan, Al Shack, who had traveled within the state, within the region, but even got out there more in the 98, 99 season and he became a, a definitely a top five player in the world at one time and then his girlfriend sue stevens um was a, a top player a top female player and she was really good in the region and really good on the national scene once they got there on tour so it was todd al shack sue stevens and then dave felberg in 99 it was me and him battling it out at every single advanced tournament you know when we're out there playing the big amateur events it was always me and him in the mix in the top five in the top three or vying for the win and it was in 99 dave felberg took top points earner for advanced terry miller got second and i got third and so you're talking about names that have been around the sport for a for a minute or two and when uh al shack and sue stevens decided to step away and have their own tour as a couple and they decided to kind of run the tour in their own motorhome and and travel, they had an open spot. So having Todd Branch and Dave Felberg, they're like, we need a, we need a third amigo. We need someone else to travel to. We need to pick some young gun, some some player with potential that's going to make it big. And again, they they saw it within me, and I was very uh, very grateful for what they did to take me on the road and give me that chance to live that disc golf dream. Wow! And and so how many seasons did that last? That that crew. That crew lasted two thousand one into two thousand two. Um, like you're saying, playing 45 tournaments, 44, yeah. 45, 46 or something. And then, I don't know, was 2002 more or less than 2001? I think very slightly less tournaments, but still a, a packed schedule. 39, a 40, grinder, somewhere in there. A grinder. And yeah. like we're, we're only playing, we're playing everything but maybe November and December or December and January during the holidays. We're taking those months off. But yeah, we're playing 10 months of the year. And toward the end of the 2002 season, it's a grinder. Like, People still do it at this capacity, but we we're playing every single weekend. And it was toward the end of the 2002 season. I remember we were at the Southern, the SoCal Championships in Southern California. And I just remember just not playing very well and just kind of just, <laughs> just like kind of beat down. I felt like I was just exhausted. The tour life was just beating me down and grinding me to a pulp. And I just like, I need to find something else in the mix. I know the season's coming to an end. I need to switch it up. And when I said I dropped out of school in 2000, the winter of 2000 and 2001, I was like, I made a promise to myself. I was eventually going to go back to school and I wanted to finish my, finish my education. I wanted to get my degree. And so it was the end of 2000 in the, sorry, end of 2002 into 2003, me and Felberg were just talking like, we need to go back to school. We need to graduate. We need to get our degree. Where are we going to school? We've traveled everywhere. We've been to all 48 States, you know, traveling around in a motorhome for the last two years. We've seen it all where's the sweetest spot to move to? And we, we really like Colorado and everything that Colorado had to offer. But I'm like, man, I like that West coast and I love California. I love Northern California. And then as we kind of move up the way, Oregon was just top of the list for both of us. It was like, it offered everything is that West coast vibe, that feel, but it was just something new and different. It was the, it was the university of Oregon, Oregon state. And obviously, we chose correctly by going to University of Oregon. Obviously, Nate. <laughs> Don't um, worry, Nate. We can edit that out. No, that's and okay. we uh, right. in 2003. We ended up moving <laughs> early 2003 and ended up moving to Eugene, Oregon. 
and uh, kind of setting our roots there and uh, never looked back. It was We were Oregon boys at that point. Yeah, man, and lucky for me, honestly, because I think that's kind of when our paths crossed is right around that time uh, when I kind of caught wind that you guys were going to be moving in, and it was just kind of at that time when I was becoming aware of, like, touring and pros and you know it was it had been a couple of years that i kind of knew that ken climo was a thing and was kind of like figuring out how the game even worked because obviously you got to imagine it's a little different time no youtube no real stats online that much you yep. know so it was kind of like you know dvds it was like you know what are you how are you going to know about this stuff as a young kid playing locally but yeah, I remember you guys um, moving to Eugene, just like 45 minutes away from where I lived in Corvallis. And I remember you coming and playing in my home tournament in uh, 2003. And I wasn't pro yet at that moment, but I remember just being so excited to see you guys throw and see you guys play my home courses. Uh, so yeah, man, I, I just I was so excited to see uh, to see you and Dave uh, come and play. I remember those times well. It's it, it was it seemed like a long time ago and it was, but I remember that shaggy haired ultimate kid coming out there and uh, <laughs> playing against all those other AMs out there, you know, playing advanced. Um, and we were up there playing maybe the Oregon series event, something at a dare, maybe or something at Willamette. Um, but yeah, your home courses and me just kind of meeting you at a first time at an early age. It was something to remember for sure. I think we hit it off uh, right off the bat. Yeah, man. And then uh, I remember. The next year in 2004, that was um, my one of my first ever pro tournaments. I, I played the Beaver State Fling and I did all right. And then that very next tournament was Willamette Open again. There you go. And, and you won. And I actually came second ahead of Felberg. And that was when I kind yep. of like was starting to realize like, oh my gosh, like I, I kind of I kind of got it here. I can I can kind of hang with these legendary guys in my eyes. You know, to to be able to play with some of the the better players in the world and and go toe to toe, and obviously I'm on my whole on my home courses, so whatever advantage that gives me, it's not nothing to be playing in in your own uh, in your own town. But that was a that was big for me, and I, I think I I think it might even have been that year or maybe the next year. And I, I'm curious, I think you probably remember this, but it's something kind of just a silly thing that has stuck with me that I never have seen again. You were on hole 16 at, at my home course, Willamette Park. You, I think you must have been on the second card. I don't know what year this was, and I think it was me and Felberg maybe on the lead card. Here we go. And you missed a putt, like a 25-footer, <laughs> and just kind of in anger, you kicked your your like Casey Pro Rock on the ground, and the thing just went in clean as anything, like clean, not end over end. You like kicked it, picked it clean off the ground with your foot, and just hold out. Like I know, I remember trying for like an hour to like, how did he do that? How did he, it was What's an the ruling on I that? Mean, does does that count? It. Well, that was felt. That was the first thing out of Feldberg's mouth. <laughs> like when it, when it missed and then he was like, what did we just see? What was that? Did he just make that putt? And we're I was like, just laughing like, Oh my God, did he just kick that? And he was mad, kicked the disc on the ground. And the thing I'm telling you, my memory says the thing flew in with clean spin. Like it didn't like go way up in the air. It was like a nice putt. And just to think about how the heck, you know, from flat on the ground in the grass, just an angry kick, and the thing went right in the basket. Do you remember that? Oh, I remember it. I knew when you were kind of just leading up to that story. I was like, here we go. Here we go. Here's the kick play. <laughs> um, yeah, I, yeah, I remember it clear as day. It was, it was one of those older Mach 3s at Willamette. I can't yeah. remember the hole, but I just remember, like, hitting a dead center putt, and this thing turned sideways. Oh, and yeah. The slit out the back. And I knew I was trying to make a move. I was trying to catch you guys on the lead card. I don't know if it was third round or final round. 
And I was like, I'm making a move. I can, I can make up strokes here. Here's a birdie putt. And the thing slips out the back. And out of frustration, I just kind of drop my head. And I look at the ground. And the first thing I see is my disc that I drove with. And it was a Casey Rock, good memory. Um, and I just did like this little, little chip kick where I just kicked down into the dirt right behind it. No intention to really kick it, but maybe I did. I don't know. It was just, it was just trying to yeah. out of frustration to happen sure. real quick. And, and in the spur of the moment, kicked it. And the thing came off with the cleanest spin, the perfect height, good rotation, dead center, and just rang it up with some heat. <laughs> and I remember looking around. I couldn't believe what just happened. Everybody else in my car couldn't believe it. And then you guys, a, a hole or two away, what just happened? How'd it go? What, what? It was unreal. And I could literally sit there all day and try to do it and not do it again. Like, yeah. I remember showing up the next morning. They tried to make a rolling on it over the night, and they couldn't come down to, is it a stroke? Is it a practice throw? What kind of violation it is? So we waited till the next morning. I remember showing up to the course that morning, and there was kids out there sitting about 10 or 15 feet off the putting basket and trying to chip kick putts into the basket just to warm up in the morning. I mean, that had to be me. That that had to be me. I was was on the tee pad. I I remember watching it from the tee pad. And I remember like me and my brother, Dion Arlen, we were all just like, how the, you know, just like trying to kick, just throw your mid-range down and give that thing a kick. How do you get that to go in? That was sweet. Oh, so not only did I get the spit out and the cut through and, and lose a stroke there, but then I did get a practice throw. Did you really? My foot being an extension of my body, I propelled the disc forward and it traveled more than uh, more than a couple wow. meters. So it was it was a stroke at that point. So wow, I didn't remember that. Birdie part. a bogey real quick. <laughs> oh sure. What what Nate's not telling you was he was super impressed by the kick, but then he turned around and was like, "No, nah, we got to charge that as a stroke." Oh so, yeah. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Yeah. Somebody, somebody did, but it, I won't. I'm not going to name names. It wasn't me, <laughs> but, there, but, but, uh, but yeah, it was. Uh, that was crazy. And something I'll never forget for sure, man. But uh, Nate, just a I'm funny sure, little story. I'm sure our fans are chomping at the bit here, so we're going to have to circle back because we can't just have a guest volunteer that he was in the Winnie Crew and not get an RV story out. Oh, of I was going to get there, but okay, I, I, all right. like well, I mean, we're going to we I think there's going to be an, another moment cuz this dude has traveled in some RVs cuz we're going to kind of get to another RV and then I think we got to circle back and get the full RV horror story from the whole career cuz that's okay, what good. we do on this show. So don't worry, we'll we'll get we're going to get that out of him. Uh, but I, but I think we got to include another somewhat famous RV that he spent quite a lot of time in. Cause that maybe could even have a worse story. We'll see. We'll see where he goes with it. Plenty <laughs> but, of RVs. Plenty yeah, of RVs yeah. throughout the years. Yeah, for sure. So yeah. So then you're living in Eugene, you know, you're close to me. I remember you guys kind of, you know, inviting me down. I was like looking through all your discs. I don't know. Like how long had, at that point, how long had you guys been with Innova? Was that a, a two th- like in during those touring days that that relationship started yeah i joined uh innova in 2000 okay um one of the cool stories beyond that and i did kind of a 20 year um innova video um, a couple years back and one of the one of the key moments in my career and that led to my entire future within the sport um and my initial sponsorship with innova in 2000 was when I was out at the practice fields, just warming up, prepping, preparing for my first USDGC. Um, again, we talked about a, I had a really stellar year in 2000 as a rookie, playing some big tournaments, win some big tournaments, and it was out there in the practice field when I was approached by 
Mr. Innova himself, Dave Donapace, the mad scientist behind all the amazing discs over the years. And he approached me. He walked up to me, handed me this prototype Firebird. And it was just like just gem, really nice Firebird. And he welcomed me onto the team and said, nice. you had a great year. You had great stats. You have awesome recommendations. And we really would love to have you part of the Innova family. And it was that moment I joined on the team in 2000. And you're talking about 2003. We've been on the team for about three years at that point. And we, uh, we were, we were, you know, we, we collected a lot of discs. We had a lot of backup throwers. We like to have all kinds of discs available as backups anytime we needed them. But then we, we like to collect as well. We're talking about me and Felberg had probably some of the nastiest collections in Oregon at the time, if not the country, just because we had access to so much plastic early on in the tour days. And we always had cases upon cases of discs in the motorhome at all times because we don't want to be out there caught on the course and not have the right disc. And we literally travel with them everywhere we went. Even if it was overseas, I'm bringing extra bags of discs. And so uh, Nate got a pretty good uh, eye-opening experience to see kind of what the disc supply or collection would be of a touring pro at that time and i'm sure it was pretty shocker yeah man i remember you guys hooking me up with discs hooking me up with shoes um and and honestly like that that moment of you having that great season and and going to innova that i was like getting good uh and other companies were talking to me but i was like no i'm waiting man i gotta get to innova i gotta get to innova largely because you guys were with innova and kenny was with innova you know so it was like that was like my my thing, and I remember you and Dave telling me, "Hey, man, if you get your rating to a thousand, we'll get you on the team." And I, I remember getting yep. to a thousand, and I was on the phone within minutes to you guys. Like I remember getting, getting <laughs> loading that thing up and being like, "Hey, hey, did you guys see the rate? Did you see it? Did you see it? Did you see the ratings?" And it was like that quick, you know. And then I was in, and it was like dream come true, you know, to follow to follow you guys onto that team and and to be able to to join. Uh, up with Innova. So it's like that, that trickles down, you know, that, that what you guys, what you did with them, it kind of like came to me and it was like, Oh yeah. You know, like I remember DGA offered me a sponsorship and it was nothing against DGA. I just, I hadn't thrown a lot of their stuff. I was really flattered, but it was like, Oh nah, man, I can't, I, I, I I got, I got to get to this one, the promised land where I want to be with, with these guys that I looked up to so much. Holding out for bigger things. It's, it's respectable. And uh, yeah, I remember, when that happened and it wasn't when ratings came out every month it was like every like three months ratings yep. came out and you had to wait it out kind of thing but yep. you knew where you're at you knew you're playing good and we did promise you once you make a thousand you're you know we're gonna give you the full recommendation to get on a on our squad yeah man i, I appreciate it because man what, what all what a lot what a journey it's been and continues to be so yeah really really awesome uh, moving into 2004, man, we got to talk about that first major title, Japan Open, 150 gram plastic. Uh, had you was that your first big international trip? I mean, had you already done Japan at that point, or or, or what? Yeah, that was actually my second trip to Japan. We played the year or two years previous in 2002. That was my big first international disc golf trip in 2002. Cool. Um, and we played a, a much smaller Showa Kennen course that was in Tachikawa, just to the west of downtown Tokyo. This 2004 Japan Open was actually the first time they hosted it up in Tochigi, so up in the the Nasu Highlands and yep. on an actual golf course. And when they had the big, you know, the Robert Trent Jones Golf Trail, big Nasu Highlands golf course, the front nine was an 18-hole disc golf course, and the back nine was an 18-hole golf course. And being a bigger, longer course, having par fours, that obviously set up really nice for my game. And just being a 
a frisbee kid for a long, long time, I was able to throw a frisbee and throw a disc and be able to adjust really quickly and 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 accommodate any kind of situation, whether it's throwing a max weight disc or throwing lighter weight plastic, being the 150 class. And I was able to adjust a lot quicker than most, even, you know, being in the full-time tour and then stepping away to fly to Japan, play a lighter 150 class tournament and then fly right back to go and put throw max weight again. It's nothing that uh, players will ever have to do again, which is crazy, but it's, it's a good thing. Um, but uh, try to explain it, trying to throw lighter weight discs. Everybody thinks it's so much easier. And Nate, as you know, it's, it's not, it's, you got to have the right disc. They got to react the same. They got to have the right flight characteristics and playing on these longer <laughs> golf course, you know, holes, par fours and such where they really stretch it out. The wind, the rain, the side hills, you know, and the kind of the rolling terrain of the fairways and even the, even the greens and where, where they put these, like these baskets up on hills and stuff. It wasn't easy. And it yeah. was one of those things. I just, uh, I don't know. I made the adjustment a lot quicker than most. And it was, uh, taking down my my biggest win to that date was that 2004 Japan Open. Yeah, and and not to mention just putting with 150 gram discs in the wind is so tough. But did that feel did that win feel like like oh, everything's different now? I'm a major champion or or were you kind of like already such a touring player that it kind of felt like an, another win or, or what do you remember? I had proved myself, I think early on and years leading up to that, but that was definitely a a rise in, in my career, as far as being a major champion, even at a Japan open, it was a big tournament that I've heard about for decades, you know, Greenwell going over there and crazy John and Climo winning these big Japan opens. And I was always like seeing these discs with their name, you know, their signature on them. And I was like, wow, I want to be Japan open champion as much as I want to be a world champion and a European champion. It's one of these big accolades where you're like, this is iconic. This is a big tournament. This has history. And I want to be a champion of this event. So it was, uh, a buildup and accumulation of a lot of things uh, to get to that point. It was definitely a, a big booster within my career as a player. Yeah, for sure. And then uh, in looking at your stats and, and your, your ratings history, it was kind of 2006. It kind of stood out to me as, as a leap for you when you kind of, you were already proven, you're already a touring player, one of the most famous disc golfers in the world, but you kind of made that leap and became really one of the best players on the planet with a rating kind of up into the 10 thirties for really about like seven or eight years where from that point you're kind of making a lot of big finishes. You won the 2006 Players' Cup Major. You had back-to-back runner-up finishes at Winthrop at the United States Disc Golf Championship in 2007 and 2008. And you won both of your national, your career national tour titles. So that was kind of the, you know, your, your best years as a player, 2006 up into like 2012, 2013, when you were really kind of killing it and, and traveling all around. And, and that was a, a time when you were kind of helping me and, and taking me under your wing, you and Dave and even Nate uh, Doss kind of, I, we were traveling together when I had time away from college. I would kind of get out, get up with you guys and, and go on some trips. But, you know, what what are those wins, uh, you know, and even the second places? I mean, I know that you're proud of, of those runner-up finishes, even though you didn't get that USDGC uh, what are some of those the tournaments that that stand out in your mind? I mean, I know that Players Cup was ten thousand dollars. That had to be a pretty uh, eye opening experience. Yeah, those are those are all big tournaments. Those are those are major events. That's what you live for as a player. You know, all the other tournaments. You know, the C's, the B's, even the A tier events. They're they're good to kind of hone your skills and prepare for bigger national tour events. The national tour didn't happen until two thousand three, and obviously we didn't have uh, disc golf pro tour until then. 
um, either. So it was big, major events. That was where the proving grounds as a player. If you're going to be somebody within the sport and be one of these, you know, top shelf players, you're going to perform well at these events. And in 2006, when the Players Cup uh, in Florida, it was one of those tournaments. I was already in, I was in, I was in school. I was at the University of Oregon. I was finishing up my degree there, and I wasn't really practicing a whole lot. It was, I think, it was like it was November or something, and it was just like I was kind of getting through the first semester, and I was just so busy with school and projects and reports and presentations that I wasn't really practicing and playing as much. Um, I was playing ultimate at the time, though, and I think that's what kind of I really credit a lot of my transition as a disc golfer to a next level disc golfer was the the ultimate side of things. Um, being a frisbee kid again, I, I liked all things frisbee and all things that fly. And playing ultimate for the University of Oregon, practicing and playing tournaments with them, playing games, I got so much better. I was good at forehand already, but having that forehand power game that I really didn't have within disc golf, it got so much better because of just all the throws within ultimate backhand. I had it dialed. I was good on that, but forehand, it made me so much of a better player, well-rounded both sides of the body, you know, backhand, forehand, and then just the, the stamina, the endurance, the athleticism you need to play ultimate. I became a better player because of it. And I really went into 2006 players cup ready to go mentally. I was prepared to win that tournament physically i was in the best shape of my life and again it really wasn't about playing as much or practice as much because it's when you've been playing as long as i have i'll say it, it i'll probably say it again it's, it's like riding a bike you know sure. it's it, you get on and start pedaling and you know what to do you just got to get reminded through a few practice rounds and get back on and, and start cranking at it like you know what to do your body knows what to do it's it's habit it's muscle memory and so that was a huge win, you know, knocking down a $10,000 tournament back in the day when tournaments weren't paying out $10,000 all yeah. the time, except for worlds, I think once or twice up to that point. And then USDC, you know, in that around the 10 or $12,000 range. So that was a, a huge win for me. And then even moving into USDC, those second places, uh, again, second place is, is first loser kind of thing. You never want to come in second place and USDC, sure. you were in a U.S. title. That's that's pinnacle. That's definitely a big major title, as you know. And but to lose to <laughs> two legends, two two Hall of Famers, a uh, future Hall of Famer, and a, a definitely a well-established Hall of Famer being Climo and Nate Doss, you know, it's losing to my idol and losing to my best friend. It was back-to-back uh, -back tough losses, but I'm glad it was uh, to them, if anybody else. Yeah, for sure. For sure, yeah. I remember being at all at all those tournaments except that Players Cup and and watching you come down the stretch. I think Climo had it kind of sewn up, but uh, but yeah, really good, really good performances and you know stuff to put on your resume. Second place at a major, nothing to sneeze at. But then it was yep. 2009, man. You know, 2009 was a, a game changer for you because, as as we said in the lead, as I think most of our listeners will be aware, you were able to take down the world championship in Kansas City, Missouri. I was there. I remember it well, watching you go into the finals. Josh Anthon coming back a couple shots, forcing that playoff. Uh, the sudden death, that last putt, you throwing your fist in the air. Uh, you know, where does that where does that moment kind of rank? for you and your life so far, you know, being able to win the worlds, even alongside Val, you know, she had already won a couple, but she won that one as well. Brother, sister winning the worlds at the same time. It falls just behind my marriage to Leah and the birth of my two boys. Yep. Um, it was, uh, it was everything I'd worked for everything I aspired to as a disc golfer. 
everything I ever wanted to achieve within disc golf was that world title. Just the intensity um, that I brought that week. And it was, it was confidence through and through. It was, it was everything again, the mental preparation golf is physical, but man, we know it's, it's so much mental. And if you can go in confident and stay confident, stay resilient, stay tenacious, you're going to come out with some pretty good finishes and even a few wins here and there. And, um, that's one thing I learned from Climo. That's one thing I learned, like the intensity. Um, even Cam Todd, you know, learning how to kind of focus energy or focus anger and put it towards something positive. And that's what that week was. It was just being resilient. This is back in the day when we used to play seven rounds for a world championship, not just the four to five these days. And, uh, you know, we're talking about seven rounds and then a final nine. Like, you got to be on your game every single round and even start off the you know start off the 2009 worlds we played blue valley and in a down you know a nice little mist and a little bit of rain i ended up cracking off a 13 under um course record to start worlds it was again it was the confidence going in knowing that when the world was going to be in kansas city i was going to bring it and i was just so pumped to have it on these courses being you know blue valley being waterworks being rosedale being all these iconic big courses that we played for KC wide open year after year after year. And I knew it lined up a really nice for my game. It was just big power throws, just big long drives and just disc golf how I like it. Yeah, man, it was, you know, it's still, it's, it's both of our best world championship finish to this date because I was, I was able to take fifth there. I remember just wanting yes. so badly to join you yes. in that final, but I didn't quite make it. Uh, but yeah, man, being, it was kind of nice to not be in the final too, because then I got to watch you do it and just be a fan in that, in that moment and see all that drama on that final day. But, uh, but yeah, just incredible. And then you got your, then you got your destroyer, you know, that had to be kind of a life changer for you to get your name on that signature disc real quick. As you were talking and talking about being the final nine, um, I have a plaque on my wall in my office and my good friend, Frank, uh, sorry. And I got a plaque in my office um, with a scorecard from my from my good buddy Tank Ken Franks. Yeah, he, uh, he actually found the actual original scorecard from that final nine and that course record Blue Valley first round, and he made a really awesome plaque for me. And it's kind of I, I get remembered. I, I remember it each and every time I walk in my office. I have this plaque right by my desk, and I get to kind of you know remember it and take it in and reminisce on it a little bit. But that was it was everything. It was everything I worked towards. And then obviously even better yet was Val winning her third consecutive world title. You know, Valerie went in 2007, 2008, and then 2009, she actually went out to her final nine before I started mine. And something we made an agreement on early in the week was you win yours and I'll win mine, you know, focus on yours. Don't worry about mine. And I won't worry about yours, but get there and close it out and do business. And she ended up going out there winning decisively winning her third world title and then when it was my time you know going out there with a two-stroke lead battling it out on the hills of blue valley you know with josh anthon matt orham and kayla visca just phenomenal players and just what an iconic moment to be out there with a gallery of 2,000 people walking the hills of blue valley on a nice summer day and to have my parents have valerie there have nate there and my girlfriend leah there um, just to have all that good positive energy going into this thing. And when I had a, you know, when I had a chance to win it in sudden death on the fifth hole, it was everything I worked towards, you know, all those early mornings going out there, all those rainy cold rounds, you just don't want to play disc golf. 
but it, it all made me who I was as a player. You know, all those, all those days where you didn't want to play, this is the reason why you play. This is the reason why you play those cold, windy, nasty days is to go out and put yourself in position to win big tournaments and to knock down that last pot. Like you said, clenching fists and kind of roaring like a lion after that big pot. It was everything I worked toward my entire career taking place at that moment, you know, and to have the gallery, have the family, have just family and friends of, uh, you know, everybody surrounding me. It was a huge moment in my life. Yeah. And, and something, you know, who knows if we'll even ever see that again, a brother and sister winning the world championships at the same time and just chances are slim. Yeah, I think they are. I really think they are. It's a, it's a, that's a really amazing thing that that could happen, that you'd be at the same time in your careers, both in your prime and, and able to come through in that moment with a lot of pressure on you. And I mean, just sudden death for a world title. I mean, you don't see that that often. We've had it, we've had it a couple of times, but man, was it ever clutch and, and, and really fun for, for me to watch and, and for a lot of other people, as you said, 2000 people out there. Really, really amazing. But, uh, yeah, man, I, I got to get that. Got to had to get to your world championship before kind of get a little sillier with uh, some memories from the 2008 Japan Open when you guys kind of took me on my first big international trip uh, over to Japan to play at that same course you were talking about on that uh, in uh, Tochigi up there on the big golf course. And again, you know, I had a really good uh, experience there and played well. And I, t- I uh, was talking to Climo on this show about, you know, beating him and Nate Doss and that kind of being kind of an eye-opening thing for me. Like, wow, I can't believe I beat those guys. I didn't beat you. Uh, but uh, I, I, I remember good. Good. hanging out with you guys and, uh, and um, yeah, just having a great time. And also having the uh, the day after birthday celebration because you were turning 30. And I, I'm sure you you might remember I'm sure you remember most of it, but you might not remember it as well as I do because if you want to tell people what your what your goal was on that 30th birthday in Japan the day after the tournament, letting off some steam. I remember like it was yesterday, Nate. Um, clear as day. No, um, it was my 30th birthday. <laughs> it was my 30th birthday, hanging out in Japan, hanging out with good friends and family all around me, and uh, we had set out me and me and Nate Doss. We'd set out to throughout the tournament focus on the tournament play the tournament but then always rely on that that sunday fun day or that monday fun day afterwards and kind of really show you the way of the tour you know focus and concentrate on the big tournaments focus on your rounds finish well but then enjoy yourself enjoy where you travel and that's the biggest kind of take-home message that's what i've tried to show everybody i've traveled with and especially simon in 2014 when we went on tour show them the ropes, show them the way. And I think we were trying to take you under our wing, like you said, to show you the way of uh, how we do it as touring pros on tour. So we had set out to play a one round golf round following the Japan open on this epic course. We're going to go out there finally and play it. Um, Play ball golf. Yes. And Nate Doss being a golfer in high school, he's, he's got it down. His techniques really, really good. I play a couple of rounds a year. I'm no good, but I really enjoy the game. And we had set out to uh, drink a beer hole for 18 holes. <laughs> and uh, so if anybody's doing the math, that's 18 beers over about a three and a half hour period. And that was, uh, that was the challenge after playing a long week, go out there and just really enjoy ourselves. And there were other groups out there trying to, you know, they're having a good time. They weren't at that level. Um, and I think we aspire to be that level. And I think Nate's definitely at that level and continues that level. Um, owning a brewery these days we're we're yeah. beer guys and we, we yeah. like to have a good time. And so it was us three 
me, Sexton, and Doss. And we're out there playing around, drinking a beer hole. And it got outrageous. I remember every like every couple holes, we'd kind of sneak off into the woods and, and, and kind of just go on a little hike. And we call it monkey hunt because we'd be hunting down some <laughs> – some monkeys in the in the jet in the woods of Japan, <laughs> but I remember uh, I remember you hitting a really nice shot on a on a par three across the valley and knocking down a birdie on your first golf round ever. Yeah, which was memorable. Yeah, I wasn't drinking beers. I'm not a drinker, but I was there uh, just living and living vicariously through you guys and riding the cart with you guys. And uh, yeah, somehow I got a birdie. I think I also got a 17 in that same round because sure, I'm sure. awful. I don't I don't play golf at all. And that course was pretty hard. Like if you hit it oh, off the yeah. fairway, your ball was gone. Like it was canyons and it was crazy. But yeah, man, I remember it so fondly just joking and, and just the three of us playing and, the, and probably the memory that sticks out to me the most. It was towards the end of the round. I was at this point not riding in the cart because things were getting pretty wild over there. And uh, <laughs> you guys were you guys were in the cart. I was like, I'm gonna walk. It's cool. I'm gonna walk. I don't I don't want to roll a golf cart right now. But uh, yeah, I remember you guys were ripping down the path, and I looked back and I saw that you had left your beer can there. And I was like, Avery, you forgot your beer. And you were like, What? And you slammed on the brakes. And Dawes, I remember Dawes just going straight through the windshield of the cart, and he's and he was just like slumped over the front i mean it's plexiglass you know he didn't break it it folded down but i remember i'm just like what happened and just like draped out of the card and man yeah just a a crazy day and it, it was fun i remember going to tokyo with you guys staying up all night uh i remember we we're going through the streets and and everyone was like because you're a big guy and you know japanese the japanese people are mostly a little bit smaller and i remember they were all like asking like people were coming up to us and asking like what you do and we i remember we were telling them you fought in the ufc and people were like coming up and like squeezing your biceps i mean yes no i i I do remember that i think it was like toward the end of that was i played in the final nine and i remember throwing a shot during the final nine where i on my follow-through put my hand against a tree and really hurt my wrist obviously uh it didn't affect my golf game the next day um, but that night I started feeling some pain in my wrist. So I remember wrapping my hand to kind of just kind of solidify my wrist and not have any like movement to it. And so I did look like I was kind of a boxer in a sense yeah, or a pride fighter. They were calling me and, uh, going through the streets, being a larger guy. That's kind of what you get. You see, we stand out uh, yeah. more than anything, but when you start being loud and, and being, a, being Americans running through town after a, a long round of of golf at the, at the golf course and spending yeah. in the city having a good time and partying. Um, yeah, Un- unforgettable stories for sure. And it was uh, a good golf round, and we, we did it a few times after that since at other Japan Opens. It's kind of tradition now. For sure, man, for sure. Uh, well, I, I got to you know take it back to your career as a player. I feel like, and you can kind of you'll, – you'll be able to speak on this better than I can, but I feel like you were kind of the first guy to really get into like – branding yourself as an athlete and having that player logo and getting on social media and for me you were kind of like the coolest disc golfer as i i remember because you were throwing bombs you were young you're in shape you're just like you know i remember thinking like that's the guy that you know kenny's won all these worlds he's the he's the legend but this this guy avery is the coolest guy appreciate that and i wonder if like looking back and seeing where the game is now in terms of social media being such a huge part of what we do as professional disc golfers if you kind of feel like, you know, you were ahead of your time and, and if you feel like you were a trailblazer in the sport, kind of starting some of that stuff. 
Yeah, I definitely jumped on it at the right time. And it, it all kind of came together at the right time being in 2008, 2009, when like I started getting on Facebook and, and Twitter and other social media. And then winning Worlds in 2009, it was about, more than anything, it was about player promotion and self-promotion as a player. Um, these days, it's, it's a little different now. There's a lot more media, there's a lot more advertising, a lot more promotion of players through their sponsors. But for so many years, that's what I had to do for myself, put myself out there as a player, kind of build my player brand. And I was one of the early ones to create a logo and have a logo, you know, signature apparel and hats and shirts. And, you know, I think Climo had a logo produced through Innova right before that. But I was definitely the one kind of doing it my own and doing it myself to go out there and, uh, you know, brand myself and represent myself as, as a player. And everything just kind of it worked its way through as being early on and kind of starting that trend. And now it's uh, you got to have that. You got to have that building that brand as a player these days. Um, especially with a good social media presence, if it's on Instagram or YouTube these days, and everybody's putting out player logos. It's just kind of the transition of being a top player. You want to have your own gear, your own merchandise, and represent yourself. You know, you want to have fans and supporters that are going to support you and rep you. And it was something I just kind of took on as, I don't know, something I really wanted to do at an early age. And early in my career is something to kind of set the stage to help me throughout my my career. And it definitely transitioned really nicely from being a player until you know the disc golf business side of things that i do now so it just kind of worked its way through and i'm i'm very uh, grateful that i you know it happened at the right time for sure for sure and you know in addition to all i've said about you know the things that you did for me and inspiring me and helping bring me along i think you did the same for uh ricky wysocki in a lot of ways being from ohio and him knowing you and your family and then another guy that a lot of our listeners are going to know uh mr simon lazat and that's kind of where i was getting to with another rv that you spent a lot of time in uh could you talk a little bit about you know kind of teaching simon the ways of the road as he kind of made his first trip to the united states uh, to play golf and you guys being there doing the deep in the game thing, traveling in the Discmania RV. And then after you get done telling us about the, some of those stories, what we need to hear for our listeners is the worst RV horror story you've got from your years on the road. Wow. Wow. That's a setup right there. Um, yeah. That's a lot of stuff. <laughs> start, start us off with Simon. Let, let's hear yeah. some Simon. And so kind of throughout my career being sponsored by Innova for so many years. And in uh, early 2011, I was approached by UC Maresma to, represent Discmania Discs and the Discmania brand. Obviously, Discmania Discs being produced by Innova Champion Discs. It was kind of a Innova Europe and a Innova, you know, Innova US kind of thing where I didn't feel like there was any kind of conflict of having whatever brand Innova Discmania. So I joined on Discmania to give UC and the Discmania brand a little more exposure. So talking about Discmania, I was an Innova sponsor player and a Discmania sponsor player co-sponsored and we and both were, were too. Yeah, yes, we both were. were too, and kind of a last, last of a dying breed in that sense. But in 2014, being sponsored by Dismania, working for Dismania USA in Southern California, we decided after we set up their offices there, we were going to have a full on, full blown Dismania tour to kind of follow through with my deep in the game instructional videos on YouTube. And so I had a chance to go out on the road. Um, with a young European, Mr. Simon Lazat, and travel the country and kind of show them the ropes and go out there and play tournaments every weekend, do clinics throughout the week, and just show them what disc golf life, tour life is in the U.S. Because it's, it's nothing like this in Europe. You know, European tour is not even a thing 
as of then and barely as now. You know, there's still some tours throughout, you know, Finland or Sweden or Norway. But as far as a Euro tour and people living on the road, it's just not there yet. It's not that tight of a tour. And it, it will be eventually. But in the U.S., you can play every weekend if you want to at every corner of the country and playing the biggest events. And so that was my uh, kind of duty handed me the keys UC Marisma handed me the keys and we decked out this uh, 24 foot motorhome with big dismania shields and wings on it and we went on the road and I got to show Simon um, exactly what that U.S. disc golf tour is all about you know playing every weekend uh, sightseeing taking the Grand Canyon taking them to New York City just doing fun things throughout the tour and I think in that year we went to like 42 plus states and I drove every single mile of it um, wow! At the, at, the, <laughs> at the very end, I think I did hand uh, Simon the wheels as we're going, you know, can him the wheel as we're going through like New Mexico and the most desolate highway around just to kind of show him what it's all about. Because I was uh, preparing to have my first child the next following year and I knew I wasn't going to be traveling and touring as much. But to have that kind of last hurrah, big time disc golf tour and to have have him along and it, we became great friends because of it. And, and it was it was an awesome Awesome uh, kind of going out party in a sense for a professional tour player like me. Yeah, man. I think deep in the game, perfect name for that series you made, man, because that's you. I mean, you, you, the guys you've inspired and the and the stories that you've got from all those years and and doing it all the way. And I feel like, or I guess, I guess before we go past, I need the RV horror story. Jared's going to get on me if we don't get. Uh, let me do that before I get to my next my next point. Gotta wow. have it. Which which one though? Which hey, one? you got to choose? They, what's the worst? What's this? The craziest worst? Like oh my gosh! And then that broke, and then we were stuck here, and oh my god, what's <sighs> going on? Anything that comes to mind? We always just look for just like a bad experience in an RV. Wow! It, like there's there's two right off the bat that I can't say right now. Like those already get omitted. Like <laughs> yeah, on, on yeah. the middle of the road in the middle of the night, and other things like I can't even talk about it right now uh, <laughs> for the family family show. Um, <laughs> But I will, I will tell you, just early on in the tour, even the first tour in 2001, um, just living that motorhome tour life, I was not ready for it. I was not prepared for it. you got to be so adaptable and so situational. You have to move as fast as the slowest person kind of thing. You're never on your own schedule yeah. and living in tight quarters. you got to adapt. And I remember making a big trip from Florida, playing the Triple Crown, and making the road trip down the 10 all the way to Phoenix to play the first big, you know, memorial, big hope, home opener of the season every year. And I remember I slept the entire time. I slept the entire road trip. Like it was 48 hours and I slept the entire time, woke up to eat and then went right back to bed. I just was, was not ready for it mentally or physically for the tour. It was a, definitely a good break in period. I remember playing the memorial and mind you, we're traveling in 1978 chieftain winnebago <laughs> 34 footer or something this thing had shag carpet it had like this brown orange yellow like this kind of pukey nasty color interior and upholstery and this thing was rugged and this thing was rough and i couldn't believe it got us to the most places that we traveled to but the best thing was we had todd branch this dude was he was a mechanic in the army he worked on helicopters for a decade or something this guy was MacGyver. He could literally put this engine, take it apart and put it back together. He wow. could fix it with a paper clip and some tinfoil. <laughs> and I remember after the memorial, 
we ended up traveling just out of town and we're getting out of town, going on to the next tour stop. Then we're getting back to Texas eventually. And I remember we break down on the side of the highway in the middle of nowhere. Um, but we ended up getting to kind of limping into like a, an outdoor like outlet mall or something where there's people around us, but we couldn't move this motor. I'm like, we have to literally camp out in this outdoor plaza in 110 degrees. I'm exaggerating. It's probably hundred degrees, but it's, it's hot. It's 110 in the motorhome for sure. (laughs) For sure. And we're broken down and we had to stay there and live in this parking lot for three days waiting for some special lifters or something, some parts of the engine that Todd took apart in the, in the middle of the parking lot and had to put that together just because we're not going to take it to a mechanic. We're not putting out money to pay for this thing to get fixed. We were making barely enough to, to, to eat, to put gas in the tank and then the entry free for the next weekend. That's what disc golf tour life was like in the early two thousands. And we literally lived in the parking lot in the plaza in Arizona for three days, not getting a shower covered in grease every night, going to bed dirty, waking up to go do some more work. And this thing took hours and hours of fix three days. And then by the time we uh, got going again and rolling, we're on our way to Texas and uh, continue on with the tour. But this, this motorhome broke down dozens of times we've blown tires um blown gaskets uh just this thing is (laughs) this thing has fallen apart on us and todd somehow put together back together every every single time to keep us on the road and keep us rolling and get us the next tournament wow that's what a guy to have in the crew man that is crazy and i knew knew you would come through with the i knew you'd come through with the killer rv horror story because you've probably (laughs) spent as much time as anybody living that rv life you know being out there years yeah, it's like uh, you might years, be the I'll leader. Say. You might be the mileage leader for time spent in RVs for disc golf. I'm up there for sure. And I, again, I want to I want to give homage to and 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 definitely a tribute to. I am a tour player. I am one of the early on tour players. But man, I I got to give it to the, the early on tour players, like the ones, the legends sure. within our sport. You know, like you think Dave Greenwell is like that's that's the touring player for me. That's that's the guy that was traveling all these various places throughout the country and then coming home during the week and working a job and yeah. then going back out there and battling it out and then playing tournaments and winning the big events, making a couple hundred bucks and then coming back home and working a, a day job. And these guys were the early tour players that were traveling around. Maybe in the summer, they got to travel for a month or two. And then even think Ron Russell, like he was living out of his van for many, many years playing and touring and traveling. Now it's just the thing. Like I was on tour when there was, you know, seven of us 10 of us at most and now there's literally dozens of players out there i would say upwards of 45 50 i would say say? yeah at least i think for sure and so it's it's cool looking back at those days the early on days when we weren't making any money and we're just living off you know the love and passion for the game yeah and i and i see that as kind of a great a great segue into my next point is kind of like that that first wave those guys were working during the week and correct me if i'm wrong but you're you're maybe like the first guy to kind of like go your whole adult life in the game and like not really do a traditional job. You said you had like some part-time stuff in college, but like yeah. you've been a player and now you're still in the game and you're going to stay in the game for your work. Like, are you the first guy to pull that off to be like that next, that new breed where it's like your whole working life is the game. Damn. I never thought of it that way. That's, it's very true. I worked in, I worked a couple, you know, jobs in high school and a couple in college, but ever since I started playing disc golf as a career, 
you know, you, you find something you love, you never work a day in your life. And that's kind of where I'm at for sure. Yeah, that's, that's perfect. I never thought about that way. Can that's you think exactly of anybody before you that was able to do that? Because I mean, that's kind of where the game is now. The great players now are not likely to to do anything else. They're going to start yeah. when they're 18 and they're going to crush it and they're going to, you know, move on and work in the game. But I feel like, again, you know, in that trailblazer sense, you, I feel like you're maybe the guy, the first guy to pull that off. That's very true. It's good, good timing. It's good timing. Again, I got, got to give it up to everybody that did before me, you know, even, sure. even Climo was on the road for periods here and there and uh, traveling and touring and, but he'd always go back to family or if he was working, you know, and he was doing carpentry work and, and doing our things when he was still playing in his early years. And I'm going to be honest with you. That was, that was the first interview that I've heard of running it. Yeah. With, that's with Climo. It was that's so fine. captivating. I'm like, what's, what's he going to say? What's this dude going to say? And I, you know, being a, being a fan of him and him being an idol of mine for so many years, decades at this point, um, I feel he needs to write a book. Yeah. That so, cool. Like I got stories. He's got stories and you're talking yeah. about his memory and like remembering names. He do, yeah, he does it. He could literally, he could get you to every single course in the country at the big events. Like he can tell you the street names. Wow. Like you take a, a left on ocean and you head up, take a right on water and you get up to De La Viega Parkway and you're at De La. Like he knows all the spots. He knows how to get your course to course throughout the entire country. He needs to write a book. And it we got to we got to get that to happen. He's such a private guy. We yeah. got to we need he need, obviously, you know, man, we got to find a way cuz that's yeah, you're so right. The stories are just it just is crazy to think of all yeah. the stuff that you could if you had a, a couple months to sit down and interview with him and get a book going. I mean, man, I I hope he'd be open to that someday cuz wow. And he's sharp. He'd remember it too. That's yeah, the thing. totally. He could, he could he could talk for like I was waiting for like a five-part series on just Climo. Dude, well, if he's willing, days. man, I, I would love to get deeper into some of that <laughs> stuff with him. But, yeah, we'll see if he – I think he had a good time on the first one, so I'll reach back out to him. We definitely one that would love to have him back, obviously. And I, he's the type of guy who could, like, tell you, yeah, and he went around the tree, and it was 1994, and oh my gosh. his putt hit a little low, and that's when I knew I had him. And it's like, dude, how do you – how are you so sharp with your memory? It's amazing. Everybody knew it was in. You knew it was in. Yeah, everybody knew it was in. <laughs> they really did. Um, but it was it was it was great to hear him give me the shout outs in there. And we spent a lot of time traveling and tour together. You know, even when he would just fly in and we pick him up the motorhome and play a tournament that weekend, he'd fly back out and we'd see him see him at De La, and then we'd be driving up from you know Cali up to Oregon, taking him on that that wild uh, poker poker run up the West Coast. Yep. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, I feel at this point I might I might have a chapter in this book possibly. Who knows. Let's go. You deserve it, man. You deserve it. Uh, I'm on it. I, I, I'm I'm on the case here, Avery. I don't know if you know this or not, but it took me like four months to convince Nate to do a podcast. So awesome. if uh, I, I'm I'm ready to wear another professional disc golfer down, I'll, Let's I'll go. do it if I have to. He can oh, do it. Here we go. He's persistent. Down. The guy Jared is yeah. persistent. Jared from Buffalo does not mess around, and I'm glad he doesn't because I'm I'm enjoying this ride. But yeah, man, Avery, kind of my last thing before we maybe get to a, a fan question or two. Uh, I, I feel like you're, you know, clearly one of the best, most well-traveled guys ever out there. And that's not only RV stuff. I'm talking like make, making it a priority to get to different countries, to play in Taiwan, to win there, to win in Czech Republic, Sweden, everywhere. You've been, you've been all these places and now you kind of have like this incredible list, super detailed list of all the courses you've played. And you're starting to try to get around and play like the oldest course in each state. Uh, yes, could you talk a little bit about the progress on that? Uh, 
Uh, I just kind of want to know like what you, what you've done there, what you're trying to do, and kind of just wrap up with like where you see your career going in the sport in the future. Yeah, I think it's uh, just man attention to detail. I'm very kind of very specific on how I do things and very detail oriented and kind of the OCD drives me for sure. And I think that's what helped me become a player at the level. Um, and then, you know, obviously being a world champion and then eventually winning, uh, you know, some bigger tournaments and being claiming that number one spot. But it's one of those things is attention to detail. And I do that with the courses I play and, and, and the discs I collect and just my lifestyle within disc golf. It's, there's not a day that goes by that I don't, do something disc golf related like it's it's impossible seriously it's impossible if i don't do something disc golf related i don't know what happened that day because it's it's impossible every single day i probably have a disc in my hand um maybe i don't throw every day but i'm always doing something related to disc golf whether it's collecting of discs or going to play in rounds of disc golf or you know selling courses or designing courses it's very yeah. there's a lot of facets with that so uh you know, what, what I do now with, uh, with course collecting, it's something that's a passion of mine. It's definitely a, a hobby that it's driven me for a long time for the multiple countries I've traveled to and played in and competed in and even staying over Europe for a month or two or three during the summer and just playing the Euro Tour events and playing a lot of tournaments over there. I started kind of just, you know, traveling around and going to some little remote spots to check out some new courses or hearing about a course that someone's got to take me to or this really private course that no one's ever played. And that's why I started kind of getting driven by it in a sense was how many courses can I play? How many, how many courses can I collect? And, and I, I want to see everything. I want to play everything. I want to check out these iconic world-class holes and courses. And it just, it, they started adding up the more I got to travel throughout Finland um, I have over 105 courses played throughout Finland wow. over whatever last 12, 15 years. And I collect them in Sweden. I collect them in Norway. I have 21 countries played, um, throughout the world. And I plan on adding you know, that, you know, it's the kind of the journey, you know, and, and the adventure of it all The disc golf adventures are what drives me these days. It's, uh, the competition, I play a handful of tournaments a year, but I love going out and playing new courses. This past weekend I was in Nashville and got to play three or four extras, you know, to add to the list. And uh, you're talking about attention to detail. I have a, a cumulative list and I'm up to 1,225 courses played in 21 countries and 49 states. Wow. And so wow. Uh, it's, uh, I'm, I'm in the, I'm in the top 10, top 12 of players throughout the world that have played this many. And, but I'm putting together a list that's, again, I try to play the oldest active course in every state. I'm up to 31 of the 50 states, even throughout countries. I'm trying to do that. I kind of make these little goals within goals to go and play the top 10 highest rated courses in the world or throughout the country or the number one in every state. Just doing stuff like that kind of, it keeps me going. It's, it's exciting. It's fun. And I always say it that when you're playing and hunting these courses down to play a new course, you wouldn't be out in these woods 15 miles away from the nearest town if it wasn't for disc golf. Why would you be out in those woods? Why would you be up this mountain? Yep. Why would you be there? but you're out there because you want to play this really sweet course that someone told you about. It takes you to the most remote, but the most beautiful places in the world. And that's what disc golf kind of brings full circle to matter. No matter what level you are as a player skill level, collecting courses and playing new courses. It's all part of that disc golf adventure. And I, I absolutely love it. Yeah, man. That's awesome. Well, what do you think, Jarrett? Do we have a, a question or two that stand out from the fan questions? We can take a little more Avery's time. 
Yeah, absolutely. We got a, a bunch of questions in here, but there are a few that I'm interested in hearing some answers to. And uh, turns out I pick I pick out which ones make the show. So <laughs> works out good. <laughs> works out good Pretty for that us works, here. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the really cool questions came in through uh, Facebook. Avery, what is your favorite hole that you have played in disc golf? And if you're standing on that tee pad, what's your favorite disc that you would throw at it? Dang. Wow. Wow. So 1,200 courses is about 18,000 unique holes. Um, I track that, by the way, just for you guys, for your information. Um, Those are like Wilt uh, Chamberlain numbers. <laughs> so we're going to break down one hole out of 18,000. Um, <laughs> I actually even thought about doing like a Dream 18, like a Tiger Woods Dream 18, but doing like a my personal Dream 18 where you have the best number one or yeah. the best number two or, you know, Winthrop Gold 18, like, or Winthrop Gold 5. Like, yep. is there a better five in the game? You know, like, and man, I just, I'm going to bring it back to what kind of where my heart is and where, uh, you know, I definitely claim to fame and where I made myself as a, as a top level player is waterworks. Number one, yeah. um, waterworks. Number one's 480 side Hill, double rolling Hills, slanting and breaking left. And it's got a beautiful view of the Kansas city skyline. And I remember, uh, going out there the night before our semifinal round at 2009 worlds. And it was me and Nate Doss just, just bros out there playing a little warm-up round, prepping for the semifinals the next day, which would obviously lead to great things. And we're like, we need to go out here and we need to play some really good golf and we need to prep and practice. And I remember throwing my signature series, AJ Star Destroyer, hole number one, and getting this beautiful flex turnover, riding the side hill over that second rise. And I remember there's a pretty good gallery of, of people kind of hanging out, practicing, and some other other kind of locals. And I remember hitting the basket wow. on that hole with a Star Destroyer. It's skipping off the top, getting about 30 feet down the hill, and then me hitting the putt for a birdie. And I think that's one of my probably one of my most favorite holes. But it's also one of my favorite shots to throw is that big turnover flex downhill side hill, but speak troll enough to keep it close. And obviously kept close enough to hit a basket. So uh, – that would be my answer. Hole number one, Waterworks, Kansas City, Missouri. It's a good answer. Yeah, perfect. And you got a chance to plug that uh, that AJ Star Destroyer out there, which, <laughs> which you know what? I don't blame you. And that's actually another disc that I have bagged, and I pulled it out before around the one time, and someone goes, you're not really playing with that, are you? And I said, what the hell am I supposed to do with it? And he goes, that, that's, a, that's a collector's disc, man. Well, you sell that thing on eBay for like 120 bucks. And I went on eBay and, you know, some of those AJ Star Destroyers do pretty good money. So obviously I did the right thing and I stepped up to the tee pad and I threw it because we don't collect yes, discs. We did. throw them. Yes, you <laughs> do. Awesome. That's a good answer. I know Nate was hinting at it at first about me getting that disc. And that was, again, uh, very, very grateful and, and gracious to have that kind of disc in the lineup and to have my name on it. You know, have a disc with your name on it regardless, you know, having a signature line of discs. As Nate knows, it's... It's what you work towards. Being a major champion is one thing, but man, to get your name on a, on a piece of plastic is, is what you work for as a, as a player. It's every way, everybody tries to aspire to that level. Yeah, absolutely. And again, that was a, that was a great plug for the destroyer. Also, guys, you can go ahead and visit your local retailer and pick up a Nate Sexton Star Excalibur. <laughs> no. So, um. Oh, boy. So I guess you don't need all those ones I've been handing over to you over the last decade or so, huh? I'm still using those. I just aced with one today. One okay, of the ones you gave good. 
Yeah. Good, because I'm your disc dealer. You know this. Yeah, I just aced with one of the black ones today. You're talking about getting some race from Double G or this and that. You know where to come. You know who's got the disc. <laughs> I know. That's true. That is true. <laughs> I got I you. Got- I got a few. I got a few pars today. Um, nice man. <laughs> so did I. So did I. To be honest, but the A sticks in my mind a little more. One question that popped up quite a bit, Avery, and obviously this one's all in fun, but there's probably a little truth to it. Talk to us a little bit about the the sibling rivalry of of having a sister who's at the top of the game and you being at the top of your game and your parents both being so big, watching down on it. What was that like? Good question, and definitely a question I've been asked throughout the years. And I never, I never felt a rivalry, like honestly. And I don't know if you could probably ask about the same thing. It was never really a rivalry between us because we played in different divisions. You know, if you're going to talk about like me and Nate being a rivalry, you know, playing against each other and wanting to win, like we're great friends. But damn, you want to, you want, you want to beat him during a round. You want to win a tournament over him, and he wanted to win a tournament over me. But when you're talking about me and Val, we played, you know, different games. And different divisions, and I knew what she was all about, you know, and I, I knew what her potential was, and there's I couldn't compete with it. There's no way that I could hold the same level. If I could hold the same level as her in men's pro open, you'd be a multiple time world champion. Um, for what she accomplished in the sport, you know, four world titles, multiple time player of the year, and now a Hall of Famer, like. She did. She did the heavy lifting within the family. Um, she holds the bulk of it. Like we had a cumulative kind of area where we kept all our trophies in the house. You know, like I had my trophies, my mom had her trophies, my dad had his trophies, and then Val had this whole other half of this wall, this whole massive section of this room just for her trophies and her trophies alone. So what she did within the sport and continues to do for the sport, um, it's it's incredible. It's it's amazing to see what she's done and what she continues to do and. Uh, there's never a rivalry between us two. We are pulling for each other. We want to see each other be successful and see each other win. And uh, it's only transpiring in the in the life and we're, everything we're doing now beyond disc golf. That's a good answer. That's a fair answer. Um, I didn't see it coming. I, I mean, I'm, I'm 37 and I still will try to carry more grocery bags in than my brother. At, at any given time, just be like, you want something spicier? I know you want a spicier answer. Man, you only the you only got four. I got seven here. Yeah, we're yeah. years apart. So we, we, I, I was out of the house, and I was already out of the house and on tour by the time she was like in middle school, and then by the time she was in high school, I was an established touring professional, and then by the time she graduated high school, was the time I could take her out in the motorhome and we could travel together, and I can show her the ropes and show her what tour life's all about. So it's been a, it's been a blessing to have, you know, to share that with so many people, and especially to share that with. You know, your family, your sibling, your your little sister to show her the disc golf tour and the travels and to see what she became within the sport. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Okay, fair fair answer. Um, Jarrett from Buffalo asks, um, before Nate asked for your sister's hand in marriage, did he have to beat you or Leroy? Wow. Wow. Great question. Man, this Jarrett from uh, Buffalo knows his stuff. He's an Kids insightful and guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how that went down was me, Val, and Nate were traveling together uh, throughout 2008 and 2009. And it was at the World Championships after me and Val both won. We're at the big celebratory players party, like just the, the big blowout party to celebrate our victories. We're at some big outdoor music venue. And 
we're all dancing, having a great time. And literally at that moment, Nate walks up to me and not asking for her hand in marriage, but asking, Hey, do I have, do I have the blessing to give to him? Can I, can I date your sister? I know we're good friends. I know we're, we're traveling companions, but I, I, I really have feelings for your sister. I love your sister. I want to date your sister. And I gave him full blessing for sure. And that same night he walked up to my mom and uh, asked the same thing. He was uh, not a hand in marriage, but to date and initially kind of, you know, reach out to Val to start dating her was kind of approaching my mom and me after we won worlds like high on life and enjoying the moment. And it was, uh, you know, the start of something beginning. And, you know, what what a gentleman and what a time to move in too, right? Like, hey, these guys, are, <laughs> these guys are winning worlds. I want to link up in this family. Yes, yes. And, uh, and, and it couldn't have been better. You know, we were good friends. And I always say like, man, to have some some random guy, some guy you don't know, date your sister, that's weird. That would be like, that would that would get me. Like, to be a big brother, to be, you know, overseeing and been protecting your sister and making sure she's taken care of. To have somebody you not know, weird. But to have somebody you already approve of and as a great friend, a best friend, a touring companion, to ask to date your sister, it couldn't have been any better. And obviously, uh, history wrote itself that, that night and it continued on. And this many years later, everything they've done within disc golf and the brew industry with Bevel, um, a lot of good things happening for the family. I'm, I'm very proud. Okay, quick follow-up from Jared from Buffalo. Since you guys are both technically, you know, retired, not playing on the tour too much, um, two of the greats, you versus Nate right now, who's going to win? Me and Nate Doss. Yeah, you guys, you guys are on a, you guys are on a course right now. Who's, who's going to win? I'm putting you on the spot here. Wow, that's good. That's good. Um, yeah. I think I play a lot more golf than Nate. Nate's I do too. skill level. Nate's skill level high end was better than my high end. I'll admit it. Like the guy is just automatic. And again, it's riding a bike. He could pick it up a disc and, and play well right now. And he was always really good short game. And even if he didn't win a bunch of tournaments, he won huge tournaments. He won, you know, three world titles and a USDGC title. It's like 30 wins, but all those are just massive national tours and, and major wins. And the dude was always in the top five, always in the top five. He slipped up on a weekend. He's coming to top 10. But right now, at this moment, um, there'd be a good battle right now. I think it depends on the course. I think it's kind of a climbable answer. <laughs> yeah. on, a bigger, on a bigger course, I think I could take him. Maybe a shorter technical course, he'd probably take me. But it'd be a, it'd be a damn good battle right now because I'm playing a, playing a lot of golf right now, and I'm prepping for the World Championships next month. Oh, it sounds nice. like a it sounds like a decent Jomez video. You know, I, I feel like we might want to see this. Well, yeah. Yeah, I, and I love how he kind of buttered it up a little bit, talked about all the great things he did before, before he broke it to the fact that he would beat him now, um, which was really, which is really kind of my, <laughs> kind of my favorite my part. Uh, yeah, you got to talk, talk it up and lay it down. And then also, also, if you could, Nate, if you could just reach out to Nate Doss for a quick follow-up for next week's episode, I just wanted to, no. Um, <laughs> uh, all the so, uh, another fun question that we got in from email and um, this question I got, we got the same one for Climo. Obviously you had a huge career, tons of big wins. Is there one throw that you still think about that you could take back? If you could take one throw back in your professional career, do you have one that you think of? Oh my gosh. dude! So I've listened to the Climo interview. That's, that's the one show I've listened to. And again, very excited to listen to Climo talk and tell stories. 
And when me and Simon were driving around doing a course design a couple weeks back in Massachusetts, we were listening to this show. You asked this question, and he immediately just knows what that what that stroke is, what that throw is. And I literally answered that question in the car saying, oh, well, yeah, for me, it's this. It's 2006, Japan Open. Um, I'm going there to repeat. I won 2004. We're back two years later. I'm trying to win and go back-to-back Japan Open champ. Um, I know Val's out there battling it out, and she's holding it down. She's going to win. She goes on to win. And it's me and Steve Rico on Nassau Highlands course. I remember I had missed a few putts. I had a few rollaways just coming down the stretch into the final hole. And it's this like 400-foot shot, slight uphill, crosswind, sloping down right to left, and a bunker just short of the basket. Like the basket's right on the back edge of this bunker. You know what I'm talking about, Sexton? 018 yes. approaching the castle and the pro shop. Yes, yes, and I yes, remember, yes. And I remember Rico throwing a shot, kind of throwing it up high, wide, right, and kind of playing that chess match, you know, trying to take that safe shot where he's not going to go too aggressive and chance going OB. Well, at this point, I'm playing, I'm playing Texas Hold'em. I'm all in. I'm going at this thing, and I'm throwing this CE Banshee. Probably didn't have the speed to get there, and to go throw it uphill 400 feet would have been a mash. And I throw it up there and out of my hands. I just felt like it had nothing to get there. Lands short, goes in the bunker. At this point, he's just going to lay it up and, and tap out for a win. Meanwhile, I go up there, mark my lie, and then cash the 45-footer across the bunker uphill to get the three, force the tie, force the sudden death playoff. We go back to 18. He throws it up there, parks it. I throw that same disc, and I'm just going to, hey, I'm just, just juice it. Leave a little higher right, get it up, get that nose up a little more, and I throw in the bunker again oh. to lose the 2006 Japan Open. So that's the shot. That's the shot. So if I would have just birdied it the first time we played it, I walk away back to back Japan, and then even if I had a second chance, and I still made the same mistake, and but he he had parked it, I had to park it too, and um, very deserving wins 2006 Japan Open. Wow. Wow, heartbreaker, a, heartbreaker. That, and uh, and then classy. again, I think you beat me on you beat me at the Masters Cup a couple years later with a a playoff sudden death up the hill putt fifty footer at Dela on hole one, and it's like Steve Rico's definitely handed me some losses over the years. He's um, done that to a lot of people. Yeah, no, he's and he continues to do it. Yeah, dude, still 10, 20, 25 rated. You know, he can play master. He can play open any time. He still plays Masters here and there, and he's he's a gamer, and he's a he's a first ballot Hall of Famer in my eyes, but. You know, I think a lot of those big losses, they they disappear really quick once you win a world title. So that was that was everything. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Let me ask you: Do you? There had to have been a time where I mean, because Simon talked about coming into the country and and being with you right away, and you've talked about having him there. Do you, did you ever have any fun with him? I mean, did you ever? There's got to be like a good Simon rib. Have you got this this fresh young kid doesn't know much about the country? I mean, do, do you remember anything that you did to to kind of have some fun with him at, at his expense when you had him here? I was tough on the kid. I <laughs> I'm glad he still <laughs> talks to me after all these years. Um, it was uh, I, I definitely played a father figure as much as UC Marasmo was a father figure to use, uh, to Simon and Eagle, and still is to this day, I felt taking him under my wing. And I remember even calling and talking to his father, you know, telling him he's taken care of. I'm going to oversee this entire thing. 
So I was definitely probably hard on him a little bit. I'm a very sarcastic individual, and that's probably the one thing that probably bugs the sh- bugs the bugs in the most. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, I think that, you know I always kind of worked him over, but I put pressure on him. I was always trying to kind of keep him in check, but I always test him. And I always felt like if I can kind of be kind of hard on on the, on the disc golf course and kind of give him a hard time here and there, it'll maybe toughen him up a little bit. But um, I, you know, we're great. We're great friends to this day. And it was like, just be me being a tour veteran with a kind of a, not so much a rookie, but definitely a rookie on tour. And I, I wouldn't change it for, for anything. You know, the, the times we spent on the road of traveling and, and the, and the moments we shared and the stories we shared and him sitting shotgun playing guitar, you know, when we couldn't have a radio signal or we did, we were sick of listening to the same CD over and over. He's over there playing his guitar, sitting shotgun as we're rolling down some desolate highway at three in the morning, like just amazing moments um, with a, with a great friend and, a, you know, a lifelong friend. And it was uh, an honor to take him out on tour and, and show him the way. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Awesome. One of the, uh, one of the things that we do on the show, Avery is uh, a lot of times we like to talk about a particular disc and Nate will kind of break it down and talk about why he bags it, why he likes it and what it does for him. Would you maybe uh, go ahead and give us a little breakdown of that, uh, that AJ Pro Destroyer and, and for all the fans that are listening, maybe tell them a little bit about why, why you like it so much, what it does and maybe why they should have one in their bag. Well, Jared, you know better. It's an AJ Star Destroyer, but I'll, I'm let sorry. you slide on that one. I'll let you slide. No, don't worry. Don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> um, one of the things with just having a signature disc, um, after I won the 2009 Worlds, we visited Innova Champion Discs in Ranch Cucamonga, California. We're sitting there in the warehouse uh, talking to Dave Donapace. I think we were shooting a video at the time, like doing an instructional video, me and Felberg. And we were just sitting there talking to Donapace. And I wasn't really... I was expecting a signature disc, but I wasn't really wasn't asking for it. Really wasn't pushing. It. I knew it was going to happen, and we were sitting there talking. And you know, we just kind of decided on what disc do you really like to throw? What disc won you the world championship? What do you you know what performs the best for you? What kind of fits your game style? And it was a star destroyer. It was hands down. There was no question about what I threw and what I like to throw. And the reason why I like a Star Destroyer, it's a, it's a speed 12 distance driver, but it was controllable. It was accurate. It was long range precision and on point. And up until that time, like we had a, a lot of discs coming out, you know, between 2005, six, seven, eight, you know, we're talking about rates. We're talking about beasts. We're talking about Excaliburs. You're talking about a boss in 2008, the year previous, you know, and, with the 2007 release of the Destroyer, it was kind of in that mix of these really high-speed distance drivers, and it was something I gravitated towards. It was something I really liked to throw because it performed so well. And even years later, we're talking 2007, we're talking about 14 years later, and you're thinking about all the discs that have released since then until now. And there's been faster discs created, even farther flying discs created, and yet nothing holds to the distance and accuracy of what a a destroyer is it's an iconic distance driver and i think probably the most popular distance driver ever and probably always will be you know you think about a lot of uh other discs sure. that are similar to a destroyer you think about the is it the zeus you think about the the raider you think about the dd3 they're all very similar to what a star destroyer is and that destroyer mold and again there's faster farther flying discs out there but nothing ever compared to it 
Yeah, for sure. The Destroyer, I think, is the, the most iconic uh, driver that's that's out there. Now, do you guys feel, and I guess I can ask you both, I, if I had a signature disc, it would be like a rule that if we were playing around, you can't use my own disc against me, right? It's like when you're playing video games with your buddies, like you can't pick the same team that I'm picking. I feel like if you have your name on a piece of plastic, whoever else is in your force and doesn't get to use that disc for that round. <laughs> Think about that. I was playing against Climo in his heyday. I wouldn't. I, I had no disc to throw at that point. <laughs> I was throwing okay, all his. I can see ABRs, how it could work against rocks, you. All his race. I was throwing uh, all his discs. No rocks. No T birds. No Firebirds. Yeah. No. Think about that <laughs> real quick. You um, can use it, just not the one with my name on it. That's the yeah. thing. Like you know, yeah. get get a different one. But you know, I don't know, Nate. Doesn't it like when somebody's. Well, I, you love watching those Firebirds fly, even if it's from somebody Come on. else. Come yeah, on, for real. sure I do. I don't. I, I rather they. I rather they play only with Sexton Firebirds. <laughs> <laughs> it's an honor. You got You got You got to understand that it's an honor seeing your disc, your name, your signature in someone else's bag, and it always will be. It's it's very memorable to see people play with the disc that you endorse in a sense. Yeah, well, just you know, just a couple of weeks ago in Kansas, walked up on hole one and it was three Sexton Firebirds under the basket in my group. I'm like, oh sweet, hey guys, like all right, I like you guys. Gotta well, love it. outside of, outside of the pros, about twenty thousand people are going to download this show, and I would say probably like fourteen of them have actually thrown a Sexton Firebird. So the numbers are pretty good. They probably all have one, but only fourteen of them have actually thrown them. So the rest of them are are <laughs> up on too walls. Much. Or, They're worth yeah. too much. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Uh, well, Avery, for uh, for anyone who's listening. If this is an opportunity for you to let anybody know what you have going on, websites, social media pages, YouTube pages, websites, where can people keep up with uh, with what you're doing? Yeah, I keep it pretty consistent and constant on Facebook, on Instagram. Um, as much as I don't play as much anymore at that capacity, I am incredibly busy. Um, you know, within what I do as a you know as a team manager for Team Dismania. And then everything I do with the Dismania Combine, our team tryout series, and our tour, and then with family, I'm living here. I'm living the country life, you know, in Oklahoma with my wife and my two boys, Aaron and Arlo, my wife Leah. And the family life, obviously, very time consuming, and I, and I love coming back home and recharging. But I'm busier than ever. I've, tra- I've traveled on at least seven or eight flights this year already. Just got back from Nashville, Nashville this past weekend on a Dismania Combine. And I'm leaving next Thursday for a trip to Puerto Rico to design a course down there. So it's the, the it never stops. The disc golf lifestyle within being a player transitioning to the business side of things. I'm very grateful for what disc golf has given me. And uh, I keep busy every day, whether I'm, again, whether I'm out there collecting courses, out there doing team tryouts, out there managing a team or out there designing disc golf courses for disc golf park. It's it's a disc golf career that I've uh, kind of set myself up for, and I'm very grateful. That's awesome, man. I, and I, I end up doing this, uh, you know, fairly often on this show. But, but you know, before we let you go, I just want to again say thank you to you for the inspiration, for the times when you gave me advice, for the discs you gave me, the shoes you gave me, um, just bringing me along as a young kid and uh and and giving us a lot of us players a path to to look forward to and to to try to emulate what you were doing so i i i just can't say thank you enough for that kind of thing and and what you did for the game and you continue to do for the game and i and i also just want to thank you for coming on the show i hope your family's doing great 
and uh, can't wait to see you at the World Championships. Hopefully, you got got one uh, one night of dinner you can save for me because I know you're going to be there's going to be a lot of people knocking down your door trying to see you. I'm sure. Well, it's an honor, Nate. Appreciate it. You really appreciate the kind words. Uh, very heartfelt, and it's uh, again, it's all for the love of the game. It's it's great to meet so many friends and family throughout the sport, and to be able to you know help a young pro along and to see what you've turned into you know, beyond a player and a major champion to see what you're doing on disc golf media. It's again, a true honor. I really appreciate the kind words and, uh, I look forward to a, a meal and a sit down and, and catching up with you soon. Awesome, man. That's awesome. Hey, and now Avery, you mentioned that you have two sons. Uh, are, are they throwing any discs? Can we expect the next generation of, of Jenkins coming through? Some may say, some may say, yeah, they've been playing since. So Arian's six years old. And Arlo is a year old, and they've been playing since they're, you know, Arian since he was a year old, and Arlo right now, like he's been making putts for the last couple months coming out here in the Sweet. yard. And I have a, I live on a ranch in Oklahoma, an hour north of Tulsa, and we have two disc golf courses on our property. One's the Island Course, and one's Moccasin Creek. Uh, Moccasin Creek is the number one rated course in Oklahoma, and uh, I'm the I'm the head pro. Um, the superintendent and the groundskeeper. So it's it, these are my everything right now. When I'm home, these courses are mine. And we're very grateful and very fortunate to have disc golf courses right out the front door. And I have a, a nice green space, a putting uh, green, if you will, with three baskets aligned at 70 feet apart with a perfect triangle and a nice driving range out there where I give lessons. And to watch the boys uh, go out there and throw, you know, it definitely brings a tear to my eye when they're out there playing or I'll hear the chains ringing at 7 in the morning. And I'll look out the front door and my, my boys out there grinding out five footers. Like it's, it's amazing to see their drive and their will to play, but they're, I'm trying to expose them to everything, you know, trying to expose them to, to baseball. We're playing T-ball now. We're playing football. You know, we're, we're doing a lot of other sports to see what they gravitate towards. So I'm not definitely going to push it. Um, as much as Climo never pushed his son Keegan to play, you let, you let them do what they want to do. And, uh, some may say that they're going to be future world champions and, you know, obviously carry on the family family lineage, but uh, they'll make me proud either way and what they choose to do. But it would be awesome if they're involved in disc golf in some capacity. Nice. That's awesome. Uh, and no, man, of course, I couldn't impose at all. Uh, for those of you, we, we had a quick cutout, but Avery had invited me to come out and play at the the two courses out in Oklahoma, but it's just not, not with my I did. schedule. I could I did. Anytime. You guys are welcome uh, to come out anytime. It's <laughs> Airbnbs on the property. Sweet. Dude, it's, a, it's a disc golf destination. I live in a town of 3,000 people, um, and we're about to uh, install our fifth disc golf course in Pawhuska, Oklahoma. So. Per capita, one of the most concentrated disc golf destinations uh, in the country, if not the planet, at you know six hundred residents per per course. So keep it a secret for yourself. Nice, don't don't good, don't good blow this up. Good things happen in a little Emporia down here, little Finland. <laughs> right. Right. Nice, awesome. Exactly. Well, Avery, it's uh, it's been absolutely awesome chatting with you. And uh, like I said, I'm going to ask from you what I asked from a, a few of our other guests, and that's just uh, you know at some point you come back on and chat with us again because I feel like you've got a you've got a lot of stories to tell, and uh, and one podcast isn't going to do it. Stories for days. Uh, I really enjoyed it, guys. Thanks for uh, reaching out to me. It's been it's been an honor to be on the show and and just talk through, just kind of relive these. Uh, these glorious times within disc golf and it's it's getting exciting this is uh, everything right now what we're experiencing with disc golf this is uh exciting times this was that uh time we we're always talking about that three to five year plan man big thanks for disc golf and excited to be a part of it now and i look forward to uh discussing with you guys in the future awesome man. Good thank to you. Us, man anytime thank you
Well, Nate, uh, Avery, obviously one of our more requested guests, and he did not disappoint with the stories, man. He's uh, he's done it in this sport, huh? Yeah, absolutely. He's the man, and uh, yeah, maybe maybe someday we'll have like a, a running it with Nate Sexton after dark situation where we could get into those those two secret RV stories that were like a little too much for the kids. So yeah, you know, he's got some. He's got even more stories in there. You 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 don't have to wonder about that <laughs> yeah that's actually a great idea maybe we could do something like that because uh yeah Avery certainly seems like he's got he's got more to go and I look forward to getting him back on here at some point so Nate you're uh you're in the best western plus you've been out you've been been playing some practice rounds you're getting ready how you feeling man how, what are you thinking about uh about this this tournament out here well right at the moment uh, I'm way too hot because I turned the AC off in the room for the show. Yeah, so uh, it's like 95 degrees here. It's crazy. Uh, but no, I feel good. Uh, the course is really long. Uh, I'm going to try to really get the game plan dialed in for tomorrow. There's definitely some holes that are not very attackable for me because they're so long or they're so dangerous. So I just got to really decide what those are. I want to be really intentional about what I'm trying to do with my score. Uh, I've been kind of getting lost out there lately. I feel like just getting so excited to be back, kind of feeling like, oh, you know, I don't know. I don't even feel like playing safe. I just want to go attack, and it hasn't been working that great. So I want to be intentional about what I'm trying to do, get out there, try, hopefully play well, hopefully be proud of my finish, and we'll see what happens. I'm I'm uh, I'm excited. Did the uh, did the big Kahuna remember to sign up for this one? Are we going to see him? Or oh is yeah, he... Kahuna's in. Kahuna Kahuna whooped me whooped me today. He's out there throwing him. He that guy throws it far. Yeah, well you know he's got that that new Thunderbirds out. It's got that yeah. retro stamp on it. He's feeling yeah. good. Yeah, got his got his stamp done up just how he likes. So uh, so yeah. yeah, he's he's ready to roll. Well, Nate, I know that you uh, I know that you're getting back to your your normal playing and your normal game plan when you're out there on the course and uh, and you know that old Nate Safeton thing. But you know, hey, it you're. You're U.S. champion, so it's kind of worked for you. So when you're out on the course, you do what you got to do. But when we're recording the show, when we're putting it out for the listeners and maybe some of the other folks out there thinking about just kind of laying it up. Yeah, man. I mean, even when you're laying it up out here at the top level, you still got to pick your spots. You got to be running it more than half the time, and that's what I plan to do. So got to keep that going. We got to run it. Absolutely, we got to run it. Guys, special thank you to Fisher Disc Golf, Double G Craft Jerky. Make sure you check them out and support our sponsors. And uh, make sure you check Nate out uh, this week playing out there in uh, in Stockton. Uh, I'm sure there's some, some Jomez video that you're going to be doing. Hopefully there's a practice round. And, uh, and of course, you guys can, uh, can catch him playing in the tournament. Um, is this going to be on the Disc Golf Network? Do you know, Nate? Oh yeah, and yeah, look forward for that practice round. That's going to be coming out any any day now. And something happened to me in that practice round that has never happened before. Oh, all right, guys. So make sure you check out our friends over at Jomez. You can follow us on all forms of social media at Running It with Nate Sexton, Running It Podcast, uh, and follow us on YouTube, Running It with Nate Sexton. Until next week, guys. I'm Jared Orr. He's Nate Sexton, and we will see you guys on 